On September 19, 2022, the organization CWS organized a site event during the United Nations General Assembly and the Climate Week. The session was called Reimagining Climate Action and Achieving the SDGs, the Individual and Our Collective Work. We made a summary for you of the session and we hope you enjoy it. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blom and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. So, so my name is Maurice Bloom. I work for uh, the Churchful Service, and um, I'm really delighted to uh, have a you know wide range of, of guests here from different parts of the world, but also working in different sectors. The session that we hope to uh, to have today is a, is a follow up of uh, a session that uh, my organization organized during the high level uh, political forum a couple of months ago. Um, we are looking at a, at a world that is um, experiencing many different types of, of crisis. And, um, you know, I really think that the 17 sustainable development goals that we developed together might not be ideal, but it is the best framework we have. If we really are putting some, some real effort into this, we can overcome a lot of those crises. Yes, they are what you call wicked uh, problems. Uh, you might never, you know, uh, solve them all, but I think you can make enormous uh, progress forward. Um, one of the reasons that we might not make the progress as uh, as we should is according to a group of people that started in Sweden and then, you know, expanded is because after we developed the sustainable development goals, we never paid proper attention to, you know, the, the abilities and skills and qualities that you need as an individual and as a community. So uh, this group of people, they did a survey and more than a thousand people uh, did the survey and ultimately they came up with that you need uh, inner development goals in conjunction with um, the sustainable development goals. So goal number one is being, number two is thinking and relating, collaborating and action. That, that resonates uh, a lot with me. So, so uh, because I, I am a fan of a philosopher called uh, Ken Wilber, who says that at least every issue or problem has four perspectives. The first perspective is I, then we, and it, and its. And if you think about sustainable development goals, you're basically, as a, as a world, you're trying to change a system, right? But you can't do that without also paying attention to who am I and what do I do and what is the role of my community. So what I'm going to ask this excellent panel to do is, is basically look at, uh, discuss or share with us, um, you know, what they're trying to do uh, around the sustainable development goals, but with that lens of the inner development goals on. And we're, we're going to use a, you know, a kind of gestalt uh, process within that. 
that's also a very important. I can ex explain later, you know, <laughs> what I exactly have in mind. And, and uh, but but um, so this is also for them nerve wracking because you know there was nothing to prepare. They don't know what I'm going to ask. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think that's also what what the issue is about. You know, um, SDG one is something else in in context A and and B. So yes, there are. Uh, there is certain science, there are certain genetic things that, that will work everywhere, but there are also things that you need to keep in mind, the context and, and the perspectives. I would like to ask my uh, panel here, or my panel, our panel, <laughs> our panel to introduce themselves, uh, say quickly about, you know, your name, uh, the organization you work for, and also I would like you to share what um, what is the pain point that you have, you know, in terms of you or your organization trying to contribute to an SDG and share that with us. So two minutes for the introduction as well as your pain point. Sydney, you would like to, to start or not? Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, my name is Sydney Upchurch. I'm a founder, co-founder of a startup. We have built a platform that automates the work of urban planners and transportation planners. and. It's designed to encourage more sustainable daily travel. So we're focused on commuting specifically. Um, I came to this field sort of in an unconventional route. I used to work in the NGO world. I did a lot of work in the Middle East and North Africa in economic development and on broader infrastructure issues, specifically in Cairo, Egypt. Um, my startup, we focus, like I said, on the sort of systemic day-to-day -day travel and I guess one of the most compelling pain points, I mean, there are lots of pain points, but one of the most obvious pain points for me that I grapple with on a daily basis when I think about how our company, which I think is very purpose-driven, how we sort of fit into the broader initiatives to address climate change, is that we're very much focused on individual personal behaviors. And as far as transportation goes and the contributions to GHG emissions, individual choices only go so far to making a dent in reducing emissions. So while we can encourage everyone in the world to walk to work or to take a scooter, we're not really getting anywhere towards moving the needle on sort of corporate actions in transportation, for example, or industrial processes that also contribute significantly to climate change. Thank you. John. Um, yes, my name is John Coonrod. I work for the Hunger Project. I founded and coordinate something called the Movement for Community-Led Development, which has 1,500 community-based organizations from about 30 countries, um, and they work together to try to shift the power to local people. And I've been actually working on this shift the power issue for more than 50 years. Um, and uh, it's uh, because uh, uh, Maurice, the problem you described as wicked isn't really wicked. It's not for a small scale farmer working to take care of her family. It's it's pretty straightforward. It's you know she needs access to health care. She needs access to education. She needs to be able to take a loan and repay it. So it's it's a it's a wicked problem from the top-down patriarchal mindset, but when you really unleash community leadership, um, it's 
it's it's these problems naturally can get solved, even issues of climate change mitigation and adaptation. So I agree completely with Sydney that it's not, um, you know, it doesn't come down just to individual decisions. But what I've seen is that when an individual, you know, like we did a event, um, and I was on, oh, I was on a call with a whole bunch of humanitarian groups. And they were saying, what we need is a, a Greta Thunberg. I thought, wait a minute. There are a million Greta Thunbergs in the majority world in the global south. And we just need platforms for them to speak, opportunities for them to have their voice heard and to, to take charge. And um, and then, you know, we had a whole bunch of them to make um, calls and they were just brilliant. But that's, we need to shift. What we need to be able to do is shift our own mindset because shifting the power is what has to happen. And uh, we need to, it's, a, it's an uphill battle in the patriarchal world. Great. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. I think uh, mine actually relates very much to what you just said. Um, so my name is Pooja Tolawala. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I was born in India, but grew up in the suburbs of Philly. And I'm testing the waters right now from New York City. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I work heavily in the youth climate space uh, with the Climate Initiative as a youth engagement manager. And then I run Youth Climate Collaborative, um, which has some storytelling components with a podcast uh, to be released before COP, and then um, an initiative to get youth on existing boards and advisory councils instead of always creating a separate, you know, youth advisory council or a separate youth board. And um, for me, I guess the pain point, oh, and I also work at Rivet, which is trying to create the world's largest uh, microgrant fund for youth-led action um, by harnessing youth purchasing power. Um, and then Youngo, which is a lot of friends here from Youngo, um, which is the UNFCCC's children and youth constituency, uh, open to anyone to join. Um, and for the pain point that I wanted to talk about is uh, you said shifting the power, I would say like sharing the power, right? So we all have power, but it's, are we, are we, giving that platform that we have to somebody else as well or not. So the way I see my position on a daily basis, um, I don't face much struggle at all. Like I'm very privileged in that way. And I feel like I have to use my lifetime to share those privileges um, in any way that I can. And uh, for and I say sharing power because uh, let's say you do have um, a, uh, a you're on a board of directors, right? Do you use that position to then also speak with people who are not there to get their voices there? Do you also say, let's look at the makeup of this board, who's missing, who needs to be here? We're talking about them when they're not even here, you know? So that's my question. Thank you, Joyce. Wonderful to be here with all wonderful co-panelists and to be joined by you all during the stressful Ungo week. Um, I'm Mary Kay Costello. I'm the Director of Policy and Relations for Churchill Service, and I've been with them for about a year now, and prior had the privilege of working with John Kunhaut at the Hunger Project, so um, the issues of the SDGs are near and dear to my heart, and especially the youth aspect in the work. Um, 
my work with church world service has primarily focused a bit more on congressional advocacy and lobbying than my uh, previous work, which focused a little bit more at the UN. So one of the pain points for me dealing with the SDGs and trying to close these gaps and affect systemic change is the fact that most people don't know what the SDGs are. And when you go to the Hill or you're talking to congressional offices, you're not even supposed to mention the United Nations. You're not supposed to mention multilaterals. It's very um, off color and they'll stop listening to you immediately. It's supposed to be about the US as a unilateral actor usually. Um, and even though those conversations are to advocate for legislation that's for foreign development assistance and the ultimate goal is that are the SDGs, it ends up not being a part of that particular discussion that you have with people. And that's a struggle because the U.S. is probably the most consistently generous, generous, even though it's, in my opinion, too small of a budget for its foreign development assistance, but still the most generous nation in the world, yet we're not talking about the SDGs as a country, and we're not um, trying to be more forward and open about the leadership. So that's a pain point for me, because you can only push it so much, similar to your point, the individual can only make a dent in it so much, unless your fellows in the working groups and whatnot want to join in on that. And then a quick second pain point is a little bit of a hybrid between what John's mentioned about giving people leadership and speaking space and for a bit too about sharing the power, and that's now that I've transitioned from being a youth and now um, <laughs> pretending to be a youth, <laughs> um, I am realizing that at one point I was really pushing to have access in spaces that I deserve to have as a youth. And now I'm struggling now that I'm not a youth to still push for those spaces, even though I'm the one that should be helping make, make it possible for youth to be in those spaces. People are still keeping those doors really closed. And like you said, want separate advisory councils and things of that nature. And instead there needs to be a bit better of an aspect to include youth. So for example, now that I work for a faith-based organization, that tends to be a much older generation that's involved in that work. And when you're pushing for certain issues that might be more attractive to youth, they're closed off to that. So that's another pain point for me is to keep the really important population that has the biggest stake in all of this, the youth engaged in things, um, now that I'm on that, over that hump. Um, so leave it there. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> Andrew? It's hi everyone, Andrew Hughes. I work with Church World Service in a technical unit covering climate and migration. Um, I use he, him, his pronouns. And I'm very happy to be here for everyone today. Um, I think a couple of pain points that I'll mention. One, in, <laughs> in working over the last couple of years with colleagues in our CWS country offices and regional offices, trying to see how can we bring to life the right to stay for our partner communities, for people in <laughs> programs that we're working with in places that are, are really feeling the effects of climate change. But we know climate change is, is one of the factors um, in, in people perhaps migrating into vulnerable situations, in some, some extreme cases, but in characterized displacement, but based on what we've heard from people themselves and describing to us, how can we, we bring to life the right to stay through investments in, in, in place adaptation, disaster risk reduction, while also trying to bring to life the right to move freely. I think we're, we're uh, a lot of my colleagues come from a, a world development background, a disaster risk reduction background, um, and are, are rightly invested in trying to find solutions so people can, can stay in place and live with dignity where they are. Um, at the same time, I think we've learned over the last couple of years, including through a research project with the CWS, 
um, that in some cases moving is a coping mechanism, in some cases moving is becoming one of the few, if not only, choices for people in communities where we're working. In some places, people are unable to move, uh, don't have the, the resources to get out of harm's way, whether that's something that they would want to consider or not. Um, so thinking through it, even as we're, we're working on uh, projects and putting together indicators, frameworks, how do we set a goal, how do we set an objective that we can measure? Sometimes I'll, I'll read the, the objective of um, prevent people from moving. So, which I understand, I'm understanding where people where where that's coming from, and in, in, in terms of the motivation to provide resources so that people don't have to move against their will or into situations where they're going to face other sorts of threats. So for us to start thinking of it in a way of how do we expand uh, freedoms in a way that the freedom to stay and the freedom to move are, are two sides of the same coin. Mobility and mobility are two sides of the same coin. So I don't have a I haven't come up with anything brilliant on it, nor have I heard. Come across others who have so hopefully for our discussion today i'll get some some brilliance through the, the crowdsourcing of this conversation here to help us move this kind of pain point forward my other literal pain point is my lower back and my <laughs> pain at times get up and just sort of drift around the room to stretch my leg and stretch my back i'm not leaving i'm just exercising my freedom to <laughs> Great, thanks, thanks, that was great. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Mary Kate uh, to give us a you know a, dig, a deeper dive, not because I'm yes, of course I'm biased towards spiritual service, but I, I I I had most time to talk with with her about um, what I hope that we can get to. So can you give us you know one layer deeper in terms of how you know what type of issues do you face as a as a formerly youth? you know, in a faith-based organization. Sure. The thing that crosses my mind immediately is this piece of legislation I've been working on now for on like five years, the Girls Need Act. I uh, started working on it with four or five other organizations and helped write that legislation in my previous role with Hunger Project. And the whole premise of the Girls Need Act is to ensure that U.S. foreign development assistance carves out specific initiatives for girls and young women's civic participation and leadership skills development. So essentially like think of like the Girl Scouts of America program and would do to make sure that there's better gender equity in communities for people to take up livelihood and leadership skill roles. And it's it's been bipartisan. We have sponsors both on the Republican side of the House and the Republican side of the Senate. But now we're starting to, and it's considered a very uh, partner-friendly piece of legislation because it doesn't touch what are still important topics of like sexual reproductive health rights, but it stays just more in the in the lanes of livelihood skills development leadership. So it means for faith-based organizations and for more conservative offices, it's actually a very appealing piece of legislation because it's not controversial, um, even though those issues are still incredibly important. Um, but we're now starting to get all this really creative pushback from ultra, ultra right-wing conservative groups claiming that the use of the word gender in general is threatening and advocating for democracy literally means that that will uh, be a way to advocate for sexual reproductive health rights. So we've had to deal with like groups that have um, pretty good sway on a number of offices on both the House and Senate side uh, want us to change 
felt some of the verbiage after we've now been dealing with this piece for like five years. So it's just been interesting to be still part of a small group uh, of young women pulling this together and pushing it into the committees to get it to the floor to vote on it, while people are still saying that the most basic, basic non-controversial issues of just letting people become leaders in their communities and learn how to participate in their civic rights um, is a problem. And it's just basic sexism and basic ignorance. And I think that's been interesting because as I mentioned, I you know, came into that piece of legislation as youth, wrote it from a youth perspective, and now I'm trying to push it with you know a higher level of experience and years with it. So I think that's been interesting because we all know how important the gender aspect of the SDGs are and what leadership and bottom-up leadership and community-led aspects of um, collective work is. So to get the most basic legislation passed for the most generous country in the world is, is even a problem. So that's been like a particularly annoying um, experience. <laughs> John's told about reading the board too. Um, so that's like an example of a good deeper dive on gender and SDGs. Yeah, let us let us stay there. And okay. any, any questions from the panelists for more clarification from communicate just it's um you know i just think this um this unwillingness um or this you know one of my mentors is francis morland pay that just was the 50th anniversary of her book died for a small planet and she said you know we don't have a food crisis in this world we have a democracy crisis that what's missing is people are are being systematically denied voice and it's intentional and i it is a that is a wicked problem how do you um, you know when someone has the power and is unwilling to share it in fact even thinks it would be wrong to share it mm -hmm. what do you do um and and that's it's so odd that we're living at this moment where there's this amazing climate crisis, which that's not new actually. And we knew about climate change 50 years ago, 60 years ago. And at the same time, we were two floors up from here. Samantha Powers had the USAID was just announcing this enormous commitment to transform USAID to really put power directly in the hands of community organizations, put money directly in the so it's it's um you know this is a, this makes it a very exciting time but we're you know we're working on really important things with a really important opportunity in front of us and really well organized opposition yeah you know, I, I in the last 50 years i can't remember it really being you know where where, where the kind of racism and sexism that drives this People away from this field and not wanting to give anybody anything to say, you know, it's, it's become so out in the open. And there's so many people also on our side of the net, um, and particularly youth, um, more eager, fired up, ready to go than ever before. So, a wild ride. I like we said organized opposition because. I, I definitely agree that that's the case. And it gets to the point where the working group will get together to try to strategize around it. And we're like, we're wasting our time trying to battle these people. They're actually just wasting our time. Yeah. And they're doing that on purpose. They're doing that to slow our progress towards something. And that's really, really annoying. <laughs> <laughs>
um, coming up with back sheets just to make sure that certain offices won't keep listening to the organized opposition, won't understand the, the importance of what we're trying to get done. So yeah, trying to be cautious of what's wasting your time and what's productive too when you're trying to deal with organized opposition. share a little story on yeah story <laughs> so i was an activist in the, in the anti-vietnam war movement and one of my professors had huge defense contracts he was like designing jet planes and stuff and was getting all kinds of defense money um into into the university and as a result all of his windows were broken pretty much every day in this beautiful building and there was this almost chatter in our minds gosh are we doing the wrong thing, breaking all those windows? Is is you know, is that just going to polarize the matter further? Actually, he changed sides. Despite his windows being broken every night, he changed sides and led the charge to get defense contracts off the university campus. So you never know. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say. Um, I attended the Transforming Education Summit just the day one, and I felt, and that was just uh, in the last like three days or so, and um, I felt that like the most important thing I heard said uh, said that day. Um, I forgot the title of the person who said it, but um, he was saying that uh, access to education is uh, still so far behind. Um, not because, you know, we're missing the resources or the knowledge of the how to get there, but because um, we're talking about um, people losing their privilege, right? Um, so if you educate um, the public that does not have access to education and they are now an educated force, you having that, I mean, that education already um, are now at the same level, right? So you don't have that privilege anymore that you used to have. Um, you lose that privilege by giving other people the opportunities that you had. And that's why we're, we're struggling to see a lot of changes, not just in education, right? And, and you know, across the, the fields. By the way, there's an old saying in Pakistan that, uh, the feudal lord is absolutely committed to a better education than his enemies to yeah. <laughs> Siki, can I ask you to take a deeper dive in, this, in what you share in the beginning? Sure. Um, I think. Uh... A lot of the issues that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis sound pretty trivial when we're talking about things like empowerment and hunger. But if we are to to think about how transportation plays into all of this, I mean, one of the one of the things that I grapple with on a regular basis is now that we've put all of this sort of engineering time and resources into developing a platform that can do urban planning and transportation planning work 
what are the implications of that and how can it be used for purposes that don't necessarily align with our mission? And we sell this product into enterprises. So businesses are using it for their employees to commute with. And one thing that we saw happen during the pandemic was sort of a, almost a resurgence of American car culture. And a lot of the urban areas where large percentages of the population have been commuting on transit or, you know, other shared modes, people kind of retreated back into their cars for good reason. I mean, we're all afraid of getting COVID. And so now that employers are bringing their employees back to the office, we're kind of fighting a new battle against the comfort that everyone has found and driving themselves to work every day. And you have so many, so many of our customers are facing, you know, like parking capacity issues they didn't have before because so many people bought cars mm -hmm. and so many more people want to commute in those brand new cars, even if they're driving mm -hmm. 20 minutes to the office. And, and so we've actually had to sort of shift the way that our product team works and focus a lot more kind of engineering firepower behind developing incentives to actually get people out of their cars and it's really hard to work with an employer to tell them that they should encourage their employees to do something they don't want to do because employers are already working really hard to get people to go back into the office and so they look at our product as sort of a perk to sweeten the deal but we're saying you know the whole point of our platform is to encourage more sustainable commuting behavior and and so those are difficult conversations to have with someone you're essentially trying to sell a product to and I think that also gets to uh, sort of the problematic nature of the private sector being a partner in the SDGs and you know where profit motivations align with activities that can promote progress towards achieving the SDGs and where they can't and sort of where we have to sort of draw the line and say not every not every activity the private sector does has to be you know profit motivated or maybe the private sector is not the most appropriate partner to be sort of a partner for making progress towards the SDGs and looking at things from a different lens that way um yeah but that's something that we've been working on a lot lately and sort of developing new tools for how to communicate to people what types of transportation are safe and how there are more sustainable modes than driving that can get people you know, back to work safely. Any need for additional yeah, questions? Yeah. Um, how does like storytelling come into play for um, your product? So as a startup, right, you have to convince um, your consumers, potential um, users um, to use your product. And so how do you use storytelling to, to get them on board? I mean, like most tech applications, we start with pain points. And commuting is an easy pain point. We all know how miserable process commuting is. And, and so especially when we're talking about employers that are in urban areas, we can look to the leadership in companies, for example, to start 
advertising that they're taking sustainable modes to work. And seeing leadership within a company, you know, posting a selfie of them taking a scooter for work, for example, <laughs> as trivial as it sounds, can actually move the needle on getting employees on board and encouraging employee buy-in. Um, and we've tried to develop a lot of tools that are pretty effective at, at encouraging employees to take a vote they might not otherwise take. And a lot of those are just aligning financial incentives the way that they should be aligned. You know, we will offer a commute subsidy for certain modes and not for other modes, or, you know, run a, a competition, for example. It's just sort of gamify the process. So it's not so much storytelling as it is engaging folks in a process that they can have a little bit of fun with. And it's just a kind of a friendly thing that you can keep track of every day. So a competition of who can take a scooter for the most miles to work in a week, or who can walk to work the most, or who can reduce their commute by the most pounds of carbon emitted in a month, for example. So, so you'd say like they're more interested in that kind of friendly competition rather than like the the overall vision of you know if you're doing this you're helping the environment. But well, I think that there is an aspect of that too. I think it's really important. Um, I think that young people particularly care a lot more about the values of the organization they work for. They're not just going to work to have a job to live. Problem. It's we actually sort of care about finding purpose in the work that we do and working for a company that does good in the world. And so when corporations sort of outline their own corporate sustainability goals, I think that employees, that's an important way to engage with employees, the values that they hold themselves that they can sort of share in the workplace. And to see that those things resonate on the individual level with the employees, I think, makes work a much more enriching experience. Then let us piggyback on your storytelling. Any any story that you have for your Sydney that you know comes to mind that you know is is helpful in having another piece of the puzzle. Uh, in, in what way though, right? Like <laughs> open ended. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard. Yeah, that's a hard one. I'm like, which angle to answer? Can you come back to me? <laughs> okay, Andrew, you you have a have a story. I should stories. I mean, I find it. I I I was asked this uh, speaking with with um, uh, college students at all the students organizations last week, and someone asked me how I got. To this line of work, which is a good and great, it's a great question to be asking, especially if you're looking to get into, into the working world. Um, uh, I try to tell uh, when I talk about how I got involved in work on migration, I tell it from personal story. So I've been with my, my husband now for almost 20 years. When we were first together, there wasn't um, a way for us as a same sex couple to have access to, uh, for him to have access to integration in the U.S. the way that we could have had it before a same-sex bubble um, uh, and through, through marriage. Um, that changed for us once once the, the Supreme Court in the U.S. Um, ruled that, that we had a right to, to marriage um, and that, that offered him a fact that just as legal status. Um, for me, I think when I was first connecting with, with uh, folks in the immigrant rights movement and migrant justice movement in the U.S. I was it was before I was working for CWS, and I just started 
getting connected because it was affecting my life and my family. And so we tell people a little bit about how it affected us. I would hear other people's stories, how, how immigration policy was affecting them, affecting their families. And I think for, that's that's for me where I got uh, a way to, to learn more, more, uh, more broadly about what is immigration policy in the US? How are the many ways that, that it's affecting people and, and hurting families in many ways? Um, but also for for a way for me just to share my story a little bit. And my story is just just mine and it's it's, it's mine and my partners, even trying to navigate a little bit what's sort of where does where is our story, how much of that is his story, how much of that is my story. Um, but I remember over the course of about seven years, I went having one experience where I would tell people about us being a same-sex couple and how we, we couldn't find a way from just status and they found politely and, and look at me like I felt like I had three heads or something. So to um, being in a community meeting in New Jersey that a friend of mine was an organizer invited me to, I was sort of stood up at the end and shared this with the audience. And all these people started popping up and saying, yes, we have this, we have, uh, we have this as part of our our organization's platform, looking at, at same-sex partners' rights, looking at LGBTQI community more broadly, making sure that LGBTQI plus migrants are part of part of our movements and part of our organizing. And you know, I'm, I reflected that that it's it's probably among other things the power of many, many, many people sharing their stories over those course of those seven years. That that's that's where there there's some some effect, and some power to have have change and I have to also look at well, what changes I'm making in myself within my organization to reflect what I've learned from the stories that people have been sharing with me over this period. Can I ask you to, to take a deeper dive into your <laughs> Into, into what, what you told us in the beginning. Tell us a little bit more. And, and, oh, about pain yeah. points. Um, let's see. I actually want to uh, highlight a program from run by some audience members here. Mm -hmm. um, so Vina and Marie Claire, I volunteer for their org. It's called the Climate Youth. Well, the program is Climate Youth Negotiators Program. And so this is to train uh, young people around the world who want to join their country's delegations as part of uh, the UNFCCC in the negotiations at the UN. And currently, uh, well, until their program, right, there was no um, training or program open to people wow. from around the world like this. Like specific countries have, you know, programs for their for any rising youth that they want to onboard, but there was not this overarching program. In fact, like the Instagram handles just youth negotiators, right? Because I'm not taking it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so it's been nice to see all the innovation and creative ideas that my peers have been coming up with, testing out, being unafraid of failure, right? Like you have to practice um, making pitch decks, asking people for financial support, for um, just uh, verbal support as well, if, if you're like a country leader, um, to, to show that they're really um, here for us in giving us access to these spaces that they have, they're lucky enough to have access to. And so I'm really interested to see how like the confidence 
of youth and like the, the bravery of youth uh, grows as time moves on. And I think in general, um, bravery, confidence are what is going to be needed from leadership who are not, you know, afraid of uh, outcomes of a potential re-election, right? Mm -hmm. And will will do what they need to do in that four years instead of worrying about the eight-year horizon because we don't have that luxury of time mm -hmm. anymore. Really, it sounds very cool. Is this? Are you sharing this curriculum yet? Is it? Yeah, happy to share. Because <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, when I reflect on my childhood, starting from you know kindergarten, I had all these opportunities for leadership development. You know, mm -hmm. running for class president or yeah. Cub Scouts or you know girls. So, um, and it's um, and then. You know, so many people live in societies that you know, keep youth down even more than this society does, and they don't have those opportunities. And so, that on the movement calls, uh, we we have lots of Zoom calls in the group for community development. Love to have you guys share uh, the story of that, uh, because there's young community leaders all over the world who are kind of coming to those calls looking for you know, inspiration for connection, for opportunities for collective voice and action. During COVID, it got it got twice as big because uh, outsiders, which would include people from the capital city, outsiders were pulled out of their villages and the community leaders had to protect their neighbors and they needed some place to turn to get information, to get voice with their own government. So, um, you know, stories like that one, um, youth negotiators handle not yet taken. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that would be, I think, really inspiring. So, lots of people there. Got to put. I think. I think you just got to put the lie to the fact that there's no money. There is plenty there of money. money. There is plenty of money for like there was a, a a meeting this morning on will the United States, the richest country in the world, achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, and we're like sliding backwards in this country. And it's it's but the one big lie is is that one that we're oh well we can't afford that which is just such a lie we can't afford clean water really that's just a lie and and um you know i think one of the um, the thing you were mentioning about courage is um everyone young and old has got to find the courage to speak truth to power to tell the truth there is plenty of money um you know, even even in some of the poorest countries, there if they were, you know, if they were fairly allocating their own resources, there's enough. So it's, um, you know, and one of the one of the, there's a new U.S. government policy with Africa, and for the first time, this new U.S. policy is not treating Africa like a problem, 
that needs help, but really as a partnership, as um, you know, as a and, and that's something I think is really, you know, when you talk about mm -hmm. inner inner development goals, I think that humility to realize one, you know, this this can be done. We can do this, we can do it together, and we can't be forced to say, well, don't do this and do that instead. Is there there is enough. And what, what, what there isn't enough is enough generosity of spirit, um, love, you know, um, that's, that's what we're, that's at the heart of what our work is. Yeah. Can I ask you to, which you can start maybe, you know, when, when I asked you guys to look at the inner development goals, and I hope you were able to do that, what are your thoughts there in terms of, oh, wow, uh, this is helpful, or, uh, well, I was already doing this, this is a no-brainer, or what we, what is your, what's your re reaction? You know, I think it's uh, super helpful and important to, um, uh, you know, work on yourself so that you can be the best leader or, you know, figure out your role in society. And leadership looks different for everyone, right? Um, figuring out your role in society or the role that you want to play and knowing that it's going to change with time. It's not like you have to pick something and just stick with it, commit to it. Um, one one program, actually, that I run is um, on climate and mental health. And it's called Climate Courage. Uh, and uh, so basically, we bring youth from around the world together to share their stories about the different work that they're undertaking, where they live. And they also share like the emotional side of it, right? Like how um, the impacts of climate change are, are um, affecting them emotionally and their communities emotionally as well, right? Like during the pandemic, there was a lot of doom and gloom and sadness in general and um well it's still ongoing i guess you know um but so they had the safe space to talk about their feelings and that also brought up other issues like um some of the like cisgender uh men they said you know in my cultures and communities like we're not able to just speak up freely about how we feel and so having the space for them was really nice that they got to just like share and talk about their feelings. And some of them didn't really know how to talk about their feelings, right? They were just like like uh, awkward pauses or silences. But it, it all, you know, um, with time, that would be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've heard the word courage a few times during that conversation so mm -hmm. far. That's the one that jumped out at me when I looked at the development goals. Yeah. Uh, so I was myself on what, what they were before we had our conversation. Um, because I think even within within um, CWS, there's, there's a lot of things that our organization does. It does well. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pull and push on uh, giving visibility to, to the, sort of across the breadth of the, the work that we do. But there are there are times when I've been in in, in meetings, especially when I'm when I'm working with, with um, working with colleagues or, or partner organizations on the slower the slower onset of the, the 
climate change, um, the climate change impacts, and not necessarily the ones that we see um, in the news the storms and floods in the news. Um, not to mention, I think some of the things that I guess to to the news people who are fleeing wars and persecution. How to how to be able to speak speak um, directly and appropriately that this needs to be somewhere in our mix of how we're of what we're tackling. We need to be thinking about 30 years, 50 years down the line. I like the way you said it 2030, 2050 are not are these are these are real points in time that are going to affect people who are alive right now and people who are not yet alive. How do we keep that on our radar screen? Now I felt moments where where um I'll admit feeling scared to speak up. Um and whether it was because I didn't feel like I knew the issue well enough, or whether I felt like I didn't want to contradict other other colleagues who I who I respect and I didn't respect them I work with them right there. Um and I, you know, I think for me it's 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 a takeaway that one of my reflections that I'll take coming out of this conversation is how can I have the right What's the right way to be courageous in, in different spaces? Maybe I need to be courageous in, in, in different different ways. Um, but I think one of it one of it would be just to not, uh, what you said, it, John, not to give give truth to the lie. Is that the way to turn it? Well, the, if something something's incorrect, objectively wrong, just don't let it don't let it slide yeah. in the conversation because it's it's that's what people I find. Um, I had a founding boss of the Hunter Project is one of those people that always knew the right mantra to say. And one of her mantras is where there's fear, there can be no love. And so the, the one of the to me part of the issue of courage is not just personal courage, but how to evoke, how to how to uh, mitigate the fear of other people. Yeah. I mean, if we put 12 year olds in charge of the country, would it really be worse? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, the, the how to, um, you know, it's, it's that fear. And people are stoking that fear, they're exploiting that fear. And, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi said, well, first step is just be prepared to die, and then the rest is easy. But, it, um, you know, it's it really, it's really true, and we've got to boost each other's courage. Because I don't think any, and I've never had courage always to tell the truth. And so if we stick with people who are going to keep us up online. Jenny? I was really struck by what you were saying, and I was thinking about how we sort of gatekeep participation especially when it comes to young people through competition almost. Yeah. We make academic achievement a prerequisite to developing any sort of leadership skills or joining any sort of organization. And I think that the inner development goals really try to get at the crux of that, which is broader accessibility in the larger project that is the SDGs and sort of how everyone has a role to play regardless of their own Know, personal academic achievements or professional achievements or training and 
sort of looking within the capacity of each individual for what their own strengths are and how they can be applied in different ways in this broader in this broader project and also looking out for other people in ways that they can participate and sort of reaching out to them where you have access and they don't have access and whether that's you know individual activities on an everyday basis or sharing a platform that you have or you know amplifying the voice of someone who may not have it it's also a part of this this broader project mm -hmm. question to the audience yeah. um can someone share maybe like one strength that you have and how you were able to use it to um advance whatever issue that you're working on profiling and it's like a level of learning so even beyond school huh. once i left school just kept on learning from life and right now i'm finding that most stuff i learned out like my career i guess but this one is more the informal education than the formal education either resilience or tenacity, collaboration and bringing people together and finding like shared goals, not really centering like any individual or group success over others. And I think that's been uh, the main way. I feel like this work needs to happen in coalitions and in partnership and with, with joint power building. And uh, I don't think I would have advanced really anything in, in this career path without that. My one of my strengths is more like um, uh, helping people to identify their strength and to bring their potential out, uh, regardless of where they come from, what background they are. Try to find some way to make the local people understand. So I've been working on 17 grants since 2016 and uh, successfully able to get grants for Southern African region. I would actually come up with two strengths that I think um, at least in my life pretty important. Number one is never stop learning. Uh, I'm working as a professor at a university. And I think if you want to teach young people, you can't stop learning yourself. And I think there is a second strength that helps me a lot, that's sharing is caring. Um, I started very early in my career to actually talk about what I'm doing, why I'm doing that, um, and how our company, for example, I started a company 30 years ago, and how we are doing that. And everybody was going like, why would you give away that knowledge? And I would say, well, if I give away that knowledge, there are more people out there that know how to do that. And if there are more people out, out there knowing how to do that, it's going to help us all. So if you want to solve problems, we need to share what we know. And what is sustainable? Like what is, so what is, how do we do something that is transformative, is practical, and is something that is, you know, feasible? And I think a lot of like coming from a edgy background, it's a lot of like, okay, we do solar well. We just keep building more solar. That should be the answer. But there's also stuff about, you know, energy energy efficiency to should come involved. So again, a, like a bigger picture and then accepting that, you know, maybe that's not maybe the most profit-driven thing to do for your company or your organization or the easiest thing to do. But in a bigger picture, it's kind of like, yeah, how do we do that? How do we do something that is actually sustainable for all the SDGs and sure have like their own ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's that's really important. It's like to look at the bigger picture, 
versus um, the lowest hanging fruit for your own organization or company? To me, independent and critical thinking. Um, and then also, like you said, like the sharing and empower them. I think you have to be in it to actually empower people. I, you know, I, I would like us to continue the conversation, but I, well, when I, I grew up, um, you know, food and drinks are important. So, <laughs> so we, we should slowly go there and continue our conversation. But before we do that, I would like to ask my, my uh, our panelists um, to share your, you know, maybe a quick takeaway from today. Andrew, can I start with you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I have some, uh, this was helpful for me, I think, in what are some of the, the qualities or strategies, maybe it's a mix of the two, that can help me try to get past some, some, some obstacles that I'm, I'm facing, not just, not just work, but other areas of life. So I think that's, that's for me, one of the values of, of having conversations and really why why crowdsourcing is, is a great approach to problem solving because the more the more uh, the more ideas that you got out there the more likely you'll find ones that work in the situations you're facing now and, and, and ones you're going to discuss about so thanks to everyone for for speaking up and sharing um, two things that come to my mind one is it's really easy to feel like a pebble on the beach when you're up against you know, huge institutions and countries thinking about shifting power, sharing power, or even shifting money into other pots, because like John said, there is enough of it and looking at reallocation. And um, if you're asked to challenge like the United States DOD Department of Defense, like have them move money, that seems impossible. But it, I guess trying is better than not trying um, because you can still get somewhere. And then the second bit is we talked a lot about like courage and sharing power and shifting power. And I think one of the big things is trying to convince the people in power to um, not be afraid to let other people who step into power to fail. Like I think I got where I got and I was able to like develop myself as a leader and learn how to empower other people because someone took a chance on me and let me fail in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important not just to be someone that welcome to you know sharing your privilege and your power or help convince others to do that but then to make sure they also know that it's okay if whoever comes into that position fails a little bit that doesn't mean they are a failure or going to fail the whole time um because i think we get wrapped up in making sure things are done perfectly or i can do a better job than this person or that person already has been doing it for 20 years they should just keep doing that and if you keep trying to act that's all about the job being done perfectly all the time, then you're missing out on other awesome perspectives and leadership roles that can be taken up by other people. So um, I'm gathering that not being afraid to let people fail in their positions of power is just as important as giving them the chance mm -hmm. to do it. Thank, thank you. I like this point about like sharing is caring. And like, um, so my grandfather's. Uh, older brothers, my great uncle, they say here, he was like a freedom fighter in India when, you know, the British have taken over and all of that. And um, I just never really had chances to talk to him and, and hear, you know, how did they um, successfully build their movement 
and how can we learn from their wisdom in our climate movement right now or our you know voting rights movement whatever x movement right like we need more spaces for sharing this knowledge for working together across generations across um sectors across you know issue areas and and you know taking that step to um stay in touch and really continue the conversations i know it's hard to find bandwidth at times but um if you don't see like a group coming together right being that person to create that group or create that space for people to come together and share and, and move forward together i think it's important like we have the space to make yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, there was so many. So Pooja's question prompted all my takeaways. <laughs> I just have to say that, you know, pushing the event into all of us collectively, we would have otherwise never heard the the, the Bloods and Crips as a leadership development program <laughs> or the or the postman, postman yeah. or you know, it's just um you know, particularly in a place like this, um Everybody here is somewhere is somewhere being a catalyst in this quest for human dignity. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so precious. And so just it's such a you know a precious opportunity to be with people who who, who kind of are in touch with that magic possibility in our lives. Mm -hmm. Isn't it also nice to just hear like what has inspired or stood out to the people who are here? Like what stories they remember. And want to share that we're like, oh, that that affected me. <laughs> I think for me, I'm hearing over and over again, and in through different lenses, sort of the importance of getting to the center of those shared values or common ground, and how you know these broader project of the SDGs may seem to be you know, only apply to certain people at certain times and how, you know, certain people may feel like they're kind of immune to the effects of climate change, but having the the skills and almost the empathy to be able to understand how it affects everyone in one way or another is such an important skill to any of the work involved in the SDGs. And I personally was a bit hesitant to talk on a panel about this because I come from the world of tech and you know, I'm talking about things that have more to do with organizations like the UN and public policy and NGOs. And this conversation has really sort of highlighted to me that it is a joint project and that partnerships are so incredibly important in sort of understanding how, you know, generally I think that people who can't see issues through the eyes of other people lack empathy but fortunately the sdgs and climate change in particular is something that affects everyone so you don't need to prove to someone that it's affecting them personally for them to care about it or at least it's you not that difficult <laughs> sorry i said i feel like self to prove it to them <laughs> in some cases <laughs> yes exactly. yeah <laughs> yeah okay thank you so much for, for uh, being here and thank you for for uh, listening i i don't know if it normally is is uh you know that kind of a moderator is kind of wrap up and you know say the, say the magic words and this is what this is what we have learned together uh, but i i think if we really listened carefully and you know um to be honest i'm not a really good listener and um <laughs> 
and you know, I my my colleagues know that around one and a half year ago or something, I started the podcast, which is a spin-off of a hundred mile walk that I've been doing for the last 10 years. And I could not walk with other people during that week that I'm walking at 100 miles. So I thought, okay, I'm I'm going to walk virtually. I start this podcast where I talk with people about, you know, SDGs, about, you know, religion, spirituality, why are we here, et cetera, et cetera. And the first couple of, of podcasts that I recorded, you know, I had to edit and then I was listening to it and I said, that's interesting, <laughs> you know? So, so because I, I think many of us, or let me speak only for myself, you're so busy. We are trying to convey what you know and what you learned is that you really don't listen. Uh, to the voters. And I, I think there's really, if we would all start doing a better job there, we would make enormous uh, strides forward. The other thing that, that I heard, zijn er mensen hier die Nederlands praten? Dat kunnen spreken? Niemand spreekt Nederlands. So my, my point is, uh, <laughs> language is also important. <laughs> right? So, you know, the context where you are, or even if you all speak English, you know, you, you speak differently, you use, use different concepts as well. And, and you need to understand, if you listen well, you know how you can come up with language that, you know, you, the people you talk with understand and then together you can move forward. I, I think that's also important. Um, yeah, you know, um, coming back to, to what you, you mentioned that, you know, I would like to see that, is it possible to, you know, those, you, the, those youth that are courageous and are doing all these things, you know, that they move forward. Will there continue to be a space for that? That's what I heard you say. I was thinking about, you know, I asked a question about uh, on my podcast, what are your worries? And then, you know, ma many of my guests are always saying, you know, uh, I'm afraid because of climate change or polarization and this and that. And there's another question, do you, where do you still see hope? And 95% of the people are saying in the younger generation, so yes, then you need to ensure that you create, you know, the, the spaces that we can start to co-create and, and talk together. Um, but there is where I also see hope. I, I, I do have to say, though, in the, in the podcast, I'm trying to my best to reach out to a younger generation to have them on my podcast. It's extremely difficult to, to get those. I get all the, always the old folks like I am, <laughs> which is also interesting. They have some, some interesting stories as well. So I, I think you need uh, both. So thanks a lot. You know, I will continue to be here, not until all the bottles are done, but, you know, until, <laughs> so, so I hope that we, uh, I, I really invite you to stay and to have conversations with each other. Um, I, I think we, as the CWS, we kind of committed to continue to try to create these type of work of sessions that are maybe a little bit different um, because I do think that uh, the inner development goals are crucial when we are you know talking about the SDGs they need to go hand in hand and and maybe the last question that that I would like to to, uh, to tell you because this is a, a friend of mine um, who's working also uh, with me about you know thinking how can you introduce the inner development goals in the where we work and, and she said to me, the big idea, maybe the big idea is what if our true work, so the work that we really need to do is to re-in reinvent work for ourselves and future generations. Let us think about that.
Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.